Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have Somesh Dash. Somesh is a general partner at IVP, one of the oldest VC firms, primarily making growth stage investments. We discuss how IVP differentiates itself, winning late stage deals, team construction, why venture capital in 2024 looks like private equity in 2008, the future of IVP, and much more. Here's our conversation. How's it going? Eric, hey man, good, good to see you. Yeah, likewise. I uh, this has been in the works for a while, so I'm excited. We uh, excited we made it happen. Thanks for uh, thanks for reaching out. Exactly, and in 2024, just a good start to the year. <laughs> well, I think I emailed you. Like, I'm a I'm a fan. I'm I'm a. There's a few I haven't heard yet, but uh, I thought um, Alfred's was awesome. Ben's was amazing. And you know, what's kind of interesting is I'm on boards with pe- these people. Many of them are mentors, friends, and like. I'm learning things about them and their firms that are so helpful. Part of the benefit of not being in like the heat of the Series A competition is that we really are kind of complementary to um, to like a lot of these firms. And I've actually like I have my own Google Doc, which I write like superpowers of the best of the best. And typically, there are people who are leading these firms. And I was with Hamad Taneja, who was you had on as well. And like his superpower, in my opinion, is like just ambition, like constantly as an operator thinking about upping the ante and what the goalpost needs to be to like really define success for GC. And he thinks of it more like a founder CEO than as a venture capitalist. Um, With Ben's, it's um, clarity of communication, like his ability to convey things in a way that are so memorable and indelible. Um, And so like, it's just been really, I I commend you because the the nice thing about your podcast is that most of us, when we go on podcasts, are talking about technology in our companies. This is the one of the few that actually talks about our firms themselves. And I just, we can even start here. Like, I really wish when I'd started in venture, like you existed then, because I could, it was so hard for me to figure out what the heck this is for a while. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. So, so help me understand. IVP, you know, you're the first growth stage firm that we've that we've had. We've had early stage firms, and then we had multi stage firms, right? Sequoia, Founders Fund, A16Z, others that we ju- you just mentioned. And how does IVP kind of situate itself in the ecosystem? You guys have obviously had tremendous success the past couple decades. Um, t- talk about your firm and how it sort of perceives itself in the ecosystem and how it competes with these multi-stage behemoths like uh, like the ones I mentioned. Yeah, well, first of all, great to be on here. Eric, this is awesome. I'm a huge fan of your podcast series and many of the people I work with and admire have been on here as guests. So um, I really wish when I had started in venture close to 19 years ago, something like this had existed because it really helps in many ways demystify and provide clarity about the venture capital industry and about some of these amazing franchises. Um, we call the firm IVP, but the original name, it was Institutional Venture Partners. And our, our amazing founder, Reed Dennis, um, you know, his vision actually still matters today, 44 years later. So the I institutional, um, RLPs are institutions, foundations, endowments, pension funds, large family offices from the United States and outside the United States as well. Um, venture is for venture capital. 
So you, you mentioned kind of growth, but really we are a venture capital firm. A lot of our orientation is to partner with these entrepreneurs and actually um, be on boards, you know, really help them in the scaling process, be there for the good times, but also help navigate through the really tough ones. And the last is partnership, both partnership with the founders and our limited partners, but also we are a partnership. And I think that is uh, a model that was pretty much the prevailing model in the early days of venture capital. But as our industry matures, um, there are different types of models being experimented with now in venture. Um, we really believe in this idea of a tight, you know, small partnership. Uh, and we really believe in equality. You know, uh, there's kind of an orientation when you come on a Monday where you really, there's not one person that sort of carries the day. It's an equal partnership where each partner has, each general partner has an equal say, an equal vote. And I think that really matters. Um, you know, when I joined the firm, I joined as an associate. And I remember when I, um, about a decade ago, when I became a general partner, um, <laughs> many of the people, it was kind of a surreal emotional day, right? When you walk in and many of the people around there were the people who hired me when I was 24 years old. And just to put, you know, the concept into practice, they said, Hey, we have, you know, an LP advisory committee with our largest LPs and, um, we rotated and you're going to chair it. Oh, and also like, we're going to have, you know, our next Monday partner meeting chaired by you and you're going to basically like run the partner meeting. And I'm like, wait, now already? They're like, yeah, now already. So I think that's the kind of conception of IVP in terms of what we focus on and how we think about the ecosystem, you know, our orientation is really around the venture scaling process. So 80% of kind of what we spend time on is the Series B and the Series C stage companies. I wouldn't get too caught up in the letters. It's really when companies are hitting that inflection point of product market fit and growth, when early teams are getting together and thinking about the journey ahead, that's really when we get excited to be part of the journey. We're typically not the first institutional capital in, but many times we are the second or, or third major investor joining the cap table. The model we jokingly call Switzerland. We have we love all our friends in the venture business equally. We have no favorites. You know, we uh, work with many of the people that have been on your podcast and their firms uh, over the last few decades, even as those firms have changed. And in terms of differentiation with multi-stage firms, you know, the <clears throat> the contrarian view in many ways at IVP is their innovation is really hard, and there's a lot of capital, a lot of energy, a lot of media attention on the zero to one innovation process, but. Um, scaling has its own set of challenges and scaling is, uh, in some ways even harder than it's ever been getting from a product to an actual business, getting from a business to an actual company, getting from a company to actually an entity that's publicly traded. These are not trivial transitions and actually having the dedicated focus on that for the last 24 years and a team that solely focuses on that, I think is a nice compliment to the amazing multi-stage firms that usually precede us on the capital. And it also, um, many of the crossover funds, um, they're also partners of ours. They typically follow us and work closely with us when businesses are at that pre-IPO stage. That's the stage that we don't really focus as much on uh, in terms of our first investment. We, we um, absolutely follow on in those rounds, but those are typically rounds led by the large crossover investors. Yeah. And you guys are staying in your lane, it stayed in your lane, it seems. Why, why are you not either a crossover investor or a multi-stage firm, given your uh, success? Well, so, I mean, semantics matter. And so actually, IVP, we do have the ability to uh, invest in the public markets. We've actually had that since IVP won in 1980. Um, one of our first ever investments in 1980 was Seagate. 
And the story that Reed Dennis, our founder, told was told us many times is uh, when Seagate went public, um, it was at an inflection point in the capital markets. I believe it was somewhere around 1983-84, there was a slowdown in sort of tech issuances. And actually, IVP um, decided, hey, we really believe in this company. We want to be a buyer at the IPO. And we'd like to buy actually when the lockup expires. And so ended up being an amazing investment for our limited partners. And from that day, we've had the ability to double down in our own companies, both at the IPO and in the public markets. What we don't do, though, is um, invest in large cap tech names or names that we haven't been venture investors in often. Um, there's been a few exceptions where there's been some market inflections in 2002, 2008. We've done a little bit of public investing. Um, the other thing that I'd say is that we staying in your lane, you know, that's pretty hard. Like, meaning there's a lot of discipline that is required to be a good venture capitalist. We are on our 17th fund. And I think like, if you just reflect on that fund one was in, um, I actually sit in the office that Reed Dennis, you know, uh, used to sit in and I have, you know, in my office, the prospectus and actually, interestingly, the prospectus used to be a bound book, right. That actually had the documents and the list of all the limited partners. And I sometimes look at it and think about how many cycles have happened in this office of IVP since May of 1980, whether it's the stock market crash of 87, you know, or the correction of 2002 or the financial crisis or what we saw last year. And I think one of the greatest motivators, I think, for all of us at IVP is to harness the amazing foundation we got from our predecessors at IVP, but also navigate new technologies, new delivery models, and always volatile markets. <laughs> and so we really believe that focusing in on partnering deeply with entrepreneurs on the scaling journey is meaningful to us. Um, we have nothing but admiration for firms that are going into brand new products, but we really like the product of venture capital and back to the IVP. We really want to remain a partnership and focused on the venture business. And I think you know, if you start going to other directions, it requires different philosophies, different team members, different operating cadences. And at this point, we just um, have a lot of joy of working with each other and being trying to be better every single day as a venture firm. Yeah. And so that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, stick to stick to your knitting, stick to what you love, stick to what you're great at. Um, of course, other, you know, some firms, uh, as you mentioned, are really ambitious, want, want to boil the ocean. Um, so when you compete for deals or when you invest, you're either investing in things that other people aren't investing or you're being the preferred choice for the founder over some of these firms with uh, bigger brands who've just invested a ton in, in, in building their, their, their brand, perhaps because they have all these resources for them being multi-stage. How do you think about which is the more common situation for IVP and uh, how you do both? You know, it's it's a great question. I'd say a lot of, if you get down to it, um, we look at about 2,000 companies a year. And of those, we kind of go deep in 150 to 200, and we end up doing about 15. So if you look at that, 15 out of 2,000, it's a pretty selective uh, portfolio in terms of the total top of funnel that we look at. And in those 15, typically, if you look at the process, um, it's usually just a handful of firms that the management team and the board of directors uh, greenlight to be the finalists. And it's usually three to five. And in that, you'll find they're typically either a venture firm that lost on a, lost out on the Cedar Series A, who's got a little FOMO and wants to do the B or C. Um, you may find a, a super late stage firm that's starting to look at going early. I think for us, um, the differentiator is, you know, we 
with a dedicated focus on scale, there's not a lot of other firms like us out there. There's just a handful. And we've typically known the management team, either from their previous companies or we get to know them at the seed and series A stage well before they raise a series B. I think on average, uh, we've known a CEO or founder 20 months before we ever write our first check. And so it's never, hey, if it's typically we're meeting them for the first time and don't have a predetermined thesis on the market and the company, we're probably not suited for a momentum process. Um, the other thing that comes out a lot in the processes is just complementary. Like, um, I was thinking about this as I was listening to one of your podcasts. In many ways, um, the early stage world, the Series A world is fiercely competitive. And a lot of times what happens is, um, you know, one firm prevails, two or three don't. Um, that firm usually wants to double down, you know, in the Series B. And our model has always been, hey, you know, if a early stage firm wants to continue working aboard and continue doubling down, that's that's a sign that something's going well. <laughs> and so we're very partnership oriented. We never try to come in and and cut back, you know, beyond a reasonable amount. The early stage firms desire to continue investing. We only compete. If you think about a ten year journey of a startup, the amount of time you quote compete with another firm is usually down to a week. Right. It's when the CEO is making the decision about who to put. And that's when it gets really fierce and everybody is trying to, you know, put their best, uh, foot forward. But the rest of the time in the journey, uh, you're on the same team. I mean, I've seen CEO transitions, market inflections, uh, strategic outcomes all occur. And uh, many of the times you're on the same call, the same boardroom with people that perhaps the media views as like the ultimate competitors. We're actually very close collaborators with many of them. And so, I think um, knowing that helps just make sure that things don't get too out of hand on the competition. Um, the other thing is, you know, many times if we aren't selecting the B and we stay in touch with the management, we can lead the Series C. So there's there's those situations that have happened as well. But, you know, in our business, the growth business, um, the power law absolutely exists. Um, in 2009, we had a similar inflection in the financial crisis as 2023. And... I remember we, uh, the venture market was kind of really quiet, just like it was in uh, the second half of 2022 in the early part of 2009. And into our office, you know, comes a company we had been tracking from when they launched at South by Southwest, Twitter. And um, it was really just remarkable what, you know, Ev and Biz and Jack were building. And we just got really excited about the upside potential. But, you know, as a growth investor, you know, we put kind of our linear hat on and said, hey, if this works, we might be able to make a 5X, maybe a 10X. Um, that single investment done in February 2009 returned that entire fund for IVP. And we had about 30 other investments in that fund. And so it just goes to show that if you get a Series B or C right, um, you could be really impactful in the journey with the management team, but you could also have the kinds of returns that people assume are only possible in the seed or Series A. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting way to to think about it. I mean, it, going back to your competition point, there's this uh, famous uh, Lenin uh, quote or something like, "There are uh, you know decades where nothing hap- nothing happens, and weeks where where decades happen." Yes, and, uh, <laughs> the, the VC equivalent is when there's a you know a competitive deal, and uh, you've been collaborative with this firm for a decade. You're good friends with them, but all of a sudden the founder is picking between you and them and you have to say why you're better. And it's, it's funny how, uh, how things shift that way. Yeah. And I, I think Eric, you bring up a good point and I, it's a little bit like enterprise software where 
fundamentally it comes down to a question that we like to ask a lot during that decision-making process, both for the founder, but for our own sake, it's about figuring out what does the company need help on? And do you have a shared vision of what this business could be someday? And if neither of those two things are aligned, if the company needs help on something that isn't a fundamental skill set or interest area of the firm, it's probably not the right place for the firm. And if there's dissonance in what the company should be uh, and the path to get there, I think that's also a difficult thing to overcome. I think a lot of people feel that it's valuation. That's the sole reason why a company you know, doesn't take capital from a provider. The reality is it's a lot more philosophy than valuation. And um, it's about conviction. If you deeply believe in a founder and a company in the market, uh, you are by definition overpaying, you know, and you are excited to do so because you know if it works out, you're going to have asymmetric upside. If you don't have conviction, it sort of comes through. I, my, one of the earliest things I worked on at, at IVP, I haven't actually told this story ever publicly, is, um, you know, the day I joined I, the week I joined IVP, uh, a friend of mine joined uh, a young startup in Palo Alto, uh, and he called me and said, hey, uh, can you come over to our offices and hang out? And I might need another ID because a lot of people work here under 21, <laughs> and the company was Facebook. And my friend was uh, Matt Kohler, and he had joined Facebook in the first 10 employees. And um, we had had a chance to get to know uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Dustin Moskowitz, Chris, uh, Sean, the early team. And uh, we had them come in on a Friday. And this was the Series C round, the Greylock um, co-led with Meritech. And um, we had a really amazing dialogue with them. But Facebook at that point was tiny. They were only in college. They hadn't launched high school or alumni yet. Uh, the numbers were good, but not great. There was a lot of outages. It was certainly not clear that that business would obviously be what it is today, but even be a billion-dollar outcome. And when uh, we decided to pass... You know, we, I had a chance to talk to the members of the Facebook management team. And I remember, you know, they kind of, they, they tried to listen and I was trying to sort of, you know, my 25 year old, you know, immense maturity self explain to them why not. And, and then, um, you know, the team said, it sounds like you guys just don't have conviction that we're going to do the things that we're, we said we're going to do. And, and I said, I think that's probably right. And I remember that conversation because, um, boy, were we wrong. And this business has such asymmetry that like when you're wrong, you know, it can be really, really painful. And so um, I think for me, the gut check I take before I ever make an investment is what's my level of conviction at IVP, you know, we go around the room and it's not Shark Tank. You know, we just say, hey, how do you feel about it? If you're going to step in and lead this, what's your level of excitement and conviction? And the entire diligence process and partnership Monday meeting debate process is really around testing the conviction level of the partnership. Have you considered over time changing uh, this, this process? Have, have there been times where uh, you thought you might want to have a different approach? Or you looked at another firm and said, hey, you know, maybe that makes sense. Or how has it evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, um, we're always thinking about different approaches, meaning we're, we're analyzing the market. We want to be aware because, first of all, for our portfolio companies, it's really important to know the ecosystem. Silicon Valley, fundamentally, Eric, is an ecosystem. And I think it's important if you're an active board member and partner to companies to be able to walk founders through the different options they have in terms of service providers, capital providers, team members. So we've certainly looked at models that have kind of gone deep into recruiting, for example. There's firms that have done, like uh, Mark and Ben have done an amazing job on the talent side. 
Um, I think for us, what we've realized at the stage we're focused on, we really want to focus on executive recruiting. So we did lean in and sort of built out a talent team. We brought in people from the outside, operators who uh, you know work at companies like Google and Robinhood to kind of spearhead um, talent for our companies and for ourselves. Um, we've looked at models that uh, involve being international. One of the things we recently announced actually about six months ago is the launch of a European office. Um, now, why is that? We've actually been doing European investing for two decades and have had European exits, including you know, TransferWise and MySQL. Um, and, and then we've had a lot of companies that have hit the scale there. So we really believe you know, our LPs um, are owed basically a strong uh, thesis about why we do something. And we're very data-driven as a firm. And so when we saw you know, uh, returns that were quite strong in Europe and exits and liquidity, we felt hey, we got to be closer to that ecosystem, closer to that market. But we didn't just kind of put a, we're open sign and find a WeWork in London. We actually took um, two individuals who have been with IVP for a long time. Eric Liao, my partner, who's been here since 2011, and Alex Lim, who was with us for about eight years before uh, leaving to join a small early stage firm in, in, the, in the UK, and then actually coming back to us when we decided to launch Europe. And... Um, they're the ones who are actually in London. They open an office. Our whole team in London, save uh, one person, are actually um, transplants from California. So it's that's sort of the way we look at it. Um, I think the thing that you know your question also kind of puts in my mind, though, is that it gives you more conviction when you sometimes look at that stuff to have the real question about who are we? Like, what motivates us? Why do we do what we do? And um, the joy I think we all get from... Uh, working with this amazing cohort of founders uh, and debating with each other how we can best help a company, that's a joy that we don't want to lose. We could absolutely, with our track record and um, our, our focus, absolutely expand in lots of different directions. But the question we always come back to is, does this help us in the service of those founders that really help define our franchise and our limited partners who've been with us in many cases for decades now? Hey, We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Talk to us about winning the deal in the sense of, you know, I've been mostly an early stage venture and I have a sense for what early stage founders need um, and how to counter position against other other players based on what founders are looking for at you know, from a seed firm or, or series A. Um, at the later stage, how does it change in terms of what is the founder really looking for 
and what are the different you know value props that that uh, sort of firms offer as a as a result? Yeah, so and it's a great question because each founder is a little different, and I think as we have evolved and the industry has evolved, I think what and I think it'll continue evolving. Um, being able to figure out how to be very specific versus generic, I think, is a really important uh, part of the venture pitch. Um, I think talented founders today, when there's so many sources of capital, are no longer swayed by just uh, "we love you." You know, it's got to be more specific than that. Um, the typical things that founders want to align with us on and and like to have our help on is um, scaling the team. Like bringing on like a Series A, Eric, as you know, is so much of it is just people that were with you on the journey when the company was conceptualized. And then you start thinking about, oh, wow, we actually have a product, which means we might need to actually hire our first product manager. Um, we are starting to get demand outside the United States, which means we need to hire territory reps, right? And so I think there's a lot of that that we love doing. And that's a little bit different than folks that focus on pre-seed, seed, and A. Um, customers, you know, most of the companies in enterprise we work with you know, they're sort of experimenting with a lot of startups, with a lot of early evangelists. But back to Jeffrey Moore, who actually once upon a time was an EIR at IVP and, and wrote Crossing the Chasm actually at IVP. As those companies cross the chasm, there's a whole different set of uh, relationships and tools necessary to sell to enterprises. And so that's a lot of what we focus on and helping companies, you know, not just get access to those enterprises, but think about how they pitch and how they evolve their strategies to them. Um, that's very much what we find the Series B. If you go a little bit later stage or you find a second time founder, um, frankly, a lot of that is um, strategy, sort of competitive insight. Uh, many founders have come to us and said, hey, we want to make a, you know aggressive play to gain market share. You know, Brian Sharples who started with HomeAway, you know, he wanted to consolidate the market. He bought VRBO, right? And I think um, there are companies like that that we love sort of financing big, bold plays on that are at scale. Um, but I think like fundamentally, most founders actually, especially after the pandemic and the correction, um, they really want people who hear them and are are just as motivated with their development as leaders um, as anything else. So the question I like to ask founders is, what's top of mind for you, the founder, not just the company? And in that, Eric, you'll typically find um, certain themes you know, I want to lean in a bit more on product and engineering because that's my background, but I have seven direct reports. I don't feel like I'm communicating as effective as I could be as the company scales. I feel like my time management is becoming more and more difficult. And while that may sound trivial, as you and I both know, being in this ecosystem, that can be the thing that really makes or breaks a company is the leadership team and the founders specifically being able to um, mature up in those processes and have the trust with a firm like ours or other people on the cap table, they can have those open dialogues. One of the companies um, I'm really proud to be involved in is, is a company called Lyra Health, and they're in the mental health space. And um, one of the things that uh, you know I've discovered is many founders have really struggled through the pandemic uh, and through just you know the pressures of a startup world with mental health. So one of the things we offer our founders is the ability to get access to help for them, their executive team, their families. Uh, through Lyra or other providers. And it's really made a difference. Like actually when you're pitching, you might be surprised. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give one other small trade secret away. Um, when we do Zooms, you know, one of the things that one of our founders came up with that uh, one of our partners came up with that was funny was um, we all to take the company logo <clears throat> and actually put it as our backgrounds. And one of the founders uh, that we recently worked with, um, Arvind Srinivas from Perplexity, 
he actually said to me when I asked him, hey, what was it that I think got you excited about IVP? He said, you know, the fact that like I signed on to a Zoom and like everybody had the perplexity logo on their Zoom background, it just kind of meant a lot to me. It felt like I'd, I'd officially grown up. <laughs> That's uh, that, that's high praise from a great founder. I'm uh, I'm also lucky to be a an investor in in perplexity, although uh, much much smaller than than, than yourself. But I want to transition into um, a couple areas from here. So one is, can you go a bit deeper on how your fund is constructed and how you think about fund size and portfolio construction and 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 all that math? Well, it's it's a great question. We believe fund size is an output, not an input. I think sometimes in our business, the media and people get carried away with the headline number of sort of how big a fund is and is it always getting bigger. Um, our orientation is different. It's to have a conversation. We, we've always had a goal at IVP to have a single digit number of general partners. And, um, you know, the history of the firm going back to 1980 there was a time where we deviated from that in the late 90s, and we had a double-digit number of general partners ranging from seed all the way to public investing, tech, and healthcare. And actually, that's when the firm um, split off into different entities. Redpoint Ventures was actually created at that time with alumni of IVP. Um, Versant Ventures and Life Sciences was the Life Sciences team. And then our group, that was kind of the new origin of the modern IVP focus on growth. Um, and so a lot of what we talk about you know, is... What's the capacity like to do this version of growth investing? Well, you know, you can only take on a few new board roles and you can only take on because we're talking to our founders on, you know, typically a weekly by weekly basis. We're interviewing candidates. We're, we're, we're very hands on. Um, you can't do the seed model. You can't do a deal a month. Right. And be that engaged and be available. Um, and also, as you know, Eric, you know, when uh, founders decide to do a financing decision, you know, we have an old, old phrase called, you got to nuke the calendar. You actually have to free up the capacity to do diligence and spend time with those founders. If you're on too many boards, you know, or you have too many outside commitments, you don't have the time to engage with the founder. And what we learned in COVID is that's so important for conviction, for the founder to have conviction by working with you and for you to have conviction to work with the founder. Um, so we typically, like we've actually found our scale. You know, we've actually stayed at the same fund size for the last decade. Uh, sort of between 1.4 and 1.8 billion, it can go up or a little down based on the number of active GPs and the capacity of it. But it's actually, um, I think, really simplified a lot of things by just keeping the strategy and fund size consistent. The team and the sectors is evolving. Obviously, in venture, you're going to bring in people with different skill sets, um, new generational talent. Um, other people start electing to become, in our in our world, a title we have called advisory partners, which is continue to be managing directors of older funds, but not take on new portfolio companies or new LP relationships. Um, and, you know, when you have a, a slowdown in the public markets, you know, also things accumulate. And so I think we're all hopeful that in the next uh, 18 to 24 months, we'll start seeing a resumption of IPOs. Uh, uh, that'll help, I think, our industry a lot in terms of liquidity. But I actually think you can do really well with different strategies. Your podcast illustrates that you could be a Union Square Ventures and, or Benchmark Capital and have an exceptional franchise that endures the test of time. You can also be an A16Z or General Catalyst and have a different charter and do really well for your stakeholders in that. Um, I think my hope is that over time, people realize that um, people have to do the strategy that they think they can be excellent in and they have to execute successfully on that. Playing someone else's game is never usually a good idea. You have to play the game that you're passionate about playing. Let, let's make it more concrete in talking about LP fund fit. 
is, is it too crude to say that for certain fund sizes, there are LPs that say, Hey, I want to, this, this is right for me because I want to deploy, you know, this amount of capital and sort of expect this, uh, this type of return or this multiple or this IRR. Whereas there are other entities that will say, Hey, I want to deploy way more capital. And as a result, I'll expect a more lax, uh, multiple or, or, or return profile. Um, and so funds sort of, uh, sort of segment across the, the LP return profiles that are, that are right for them. Is, is, is that, is that too crude or too simplistic? Um, talk a little bit about the, the that. Yeah. I, um, I wish it was the case that we had a more efficient market where people sort of self-selected on the LP side and on the GP side around, this is the lane I'm staying in. These are going to be with high precision or returns. I, unfortunately, Eric, I think, um, that's not the case because venture is so dynamic. Nobody predicted in 2021 the boom that happened with the ZERP era. No one predicted um, how dramatic, well, maybe Bill did, but everyone else didn't, uh, Bill Gurley, but um, uh, how dramatic the fall off would be in 2022. Um, you know, no one saw, I think, uh, the rise and quick correction in crypto, but also the rise in the last 18 months of LLMs post ChatGPT. So, it's venture is so much more dynamic than most asset classes and inherently volatile that I think it's difficult for people to sort of um, do that. I think superseding a lot of what your perspective is returns, like fundamentally LPs want liquidity. They want to use that liquidity for their constituencies, right? So if you're an endowment, you know, there are research projects, dormitories, you know, um, charitable things that you'd like to do with the proceeds from a firm. And you know, whether it's uh, sometimes I, I always joke like liquidity is liquidity, <laughs> whether it's a one X or a three X, like at some point you need to begin the DPI chart. So I think there was a lesson learned for a lot of firms uh, that when you have the opportunity, you have to take that liquidity and send it back. Um, one of the things I feel proud of is that we have a multi-generational partnership. And the benefit of that is in 2021, when we had the opportunity with uh, a few direct listings and IPOs to send um, capital back, we really did take advantage of that. And I think that's a, that was really appreciated by a lot of our limited partners. Um, the other thing I would say is, I think, back to the early point, a lot of strategies can work, Eric, and venture, right? Like you can actually um, be a Series A firm and be really coveted. Um, your point is accurate, though, in that if you're a very large sovereign wealth fund or a very large U.S. state pension fund, um, the actual allocation you will get in the top venture managers is very small. So just like we have portfolios where there are some things that you know we have a small starting position in, there are other things that we have conviction in doubling down on, um, they also have the portfolio where many of them would love to get uh, a small allocation in one of the best venture managers. But the reality is, if you're running $10 billion a year in sort of venture exposure and you're getting a $5 million allocation in a venture fund, even if that is a 10x, it doesn't move the needle. And that is why you're seeing, I think, a lot of firms start bring on opportunity and growth vehicles. Um, a lot of firms move into different markets. The challenge, though, with doing that is fundamentally at some point when people benchmark you against your peers, you do have to show returns. And you have to show relative performance that's better than your peers from the same cohort, the same vintage year. And the benefit of being at a 44-year-old firm is we have lots of lessons learned. Um, and one of them from sort of 2002 was, you know, take early liquidity and be judicious about wait, waiting on when the market's correct. A lot of firms 
said, oh my God, the market's corrected. It's done. Like things are so cheap because it's 10% cheaper than it was in April, 2021. Well, actually, like if you look at comps, uh, public companies and private companies over a 10 to 20 year time period, most uh, companies over a longer time period, the best ones are trading three to five times revenue. Now, obviously things have changed. I think that there's going to be a lot of companies that are more efficient and high, highly predictable and profitable. But um, I think people get carried away when they see a 10% public or private market discount and think the markets are fully corrected. As we know, the markets took a long time to fully correct from the highs of 2021. Why are you so bullish on the IPO window opening up? Or what, what, are, you, what are you seeing? Yeah, so I think... Um, the window actually is always open, even in the, the lowest of low markets for the best companies. Um, I think the question is just, what are the trading dynamics and multiples? And so if you're a company today, Morgan Stanley had a good research report recently on this to start the year. Um, you know, the best companies are doing meetings with the best IPO buyers all through this crisis. And there's a lot of appetite to have new names enter. Um, I think when interest rates were, you know, at zero, Obviously, valuations got too inflated and multiples became unsustainable. But then if you look at now, um, some of the companies that have corrected, you know, there's a lot of demand for new names. Take security, for example. Um, you have now some amazing publicly traded companies like Palo Networks and CrowdStrike um, and Zscaler and others. But I think like there are five to 10 companies that are uh, still growing 20 to 30% at or beyond profitability, predictable in their models, all of which are in markets that are really big and really growing. And I think a lot of the public market investors are saying, well, we're going to continue being holders of, of Palo Alto and CrowdStrike, but we also want to play these new themes in security that are starting to come out. And the only way to do that for them is to actually have new public issuances. So I actually don't see the window at all being completely shut. I actually think companies have used the last 18 months to regroup um, and actually do a lot of things from, you know, managing through hybrid work, thinking through a little bit about this new world of AI, which is so exciting to a lot of public investors. Today, if you want to imagine you're a public market investor, Eric, and you want to like actually trade on AI, you buy Google stock, you short maybe, you know, uh, another stock, right? In a company that you don't believe is going to harness it. So I think the window is, uh, we have companies on on file that have been kind of ready to go when the, when the market opens up. I think the bigger structural thing though, that um, we have to think about is are there is there going to be continued innovation you know that's going to be sustained by the US government and others around these these fields like AI I think it's totally fair that um, we want to make sure that the United States doesn't have any bad actors utilize you know AI to basically hurt our citizens our people uh, interfere with our elections that are coming up but on the other hand of it you don't want to overregulate um, the US markets at a point where, companies are really afraid of sort of innovating and taking risk and other, it's a global marketplace more than ever today. Um, you could be an entrepreneur in Bengaluru, you could be an entrepreneur in, you know, Eastern Europe and ultimately harness the same customer sets, you know, the digital infrastructure and build a massive $10 billion plus public company today. I really believe that. So I just hope that, you know, as we're going through a transition in our leadership in the United States in the next 12 to 18 months, um, we will sort of not forget that innovation is the lifeblood of the American economy and the venture business. If you think about the most valuable companies on the S and P 500, so many of them started here in Silicon Valley with venture firms that you have on your show. Right. And so that's, I think what's remarkable and different. Totally. Uh, well said. 
earlier we were you were talking about how you add value to your portfolio companies. Can you talk about how you've thought about constructing the the team um, at, at IVP and maybe how it differentiates from how other firms think about uh, team construction, out, uh, both on the partnership level but also outside of the outside of the partnership? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know for us, what's really important is we've really believed um, in the idea of the multi generational partnership. And I think we wanted to sustain that. Those are one of the things that like we've seen when having, you know, and tr- to us, like having a, a partnership that has seen different cycles combined with um, younger GPs that are building their career here at IVP is just really remarkable. I joined as an associate. Um, you know, I've been with the firm now for 19 years. Truly for me, Eric, like the joy of seeing, uh, you know, our next generation compete and win competitive deals, uh, serve on boards, like partner deeply with these, you know, soon to be iconic founders. That's really, really special. Um, it's interesting. What we have found is, uh, not to be too prescriptive or academic about people's backgrounds in the early years. If you look at IVP's history, the early, early era of venture capital in the seventies and eighties, most of the folks who came into the industry at then when it wasn't really an industry yet, were financiers. Many of them were sort of East Coast trained financiers, had MBAs, had worked for large uh, insurance companies or financial services institution. Like that's kind of the world that venture came from. You know, in the 80s and 90s, it started transitioning to people that were deep engineers because at that time, the companies were so, were semiconductor companies or optical networking companies. Um, now, I think what we found in our team is we really like people who um, are just curious and passionate about technology. Like that's the horizontal layer. You've got to be a curious person and you really got to enjoy um, the dialogue with uh, with entrepreneurs. If you're somebody who doesn't enjoy getting that call late at night and dealing with the complexity of the startup journey, it's not going to be a fun job. <laughs> it's just fundamentally not. Um, I think if you do enjoy um, the deep partnership and complexity, there's almost no better industry than venture capital. And we, we think our firm um, provides a lot of joy in that. The, the, the team today, if you look at it, is a combination of people like me who have come into the venture business at a young age and grown up in our firm or firms similar to us. You know, Eric Liao um, was at TCV uh, for many years before he came here at IVP. Um, you know, Steve Herrick and Dennis Phelps uh, were both at the Internet Capital Group, you know, and came here about 22 years ago and, and helped uh, pioneer this new model. Um, but then our next generation, it's interesting, many of them have, some have come from early stage firms. Um, my partner, Kak Wom, was at Accomplice and Scale um, and actually has go-to-market experience, which is so coveted by a lot of Series B and C stage companies. Uh, she was she started her career as um, in the sales team of Cloudera and Oracle. Uh, my partner, Ajay Vashi, uh, was at Dropbox and actually was uh, pioneered the strategic finance team, was CFO there before he came here. And so if you think about um, the needs of scaling, they fall into a few functional areas, building a finance team and having strong financial expertise, building a go-to-market team and understanding how to sell the product, thinking about operations, people. Our goal at IVP is to provide some of the best-in-class resources around that. Many of those people work for us full-time. Um, Davey Nichols, who runs People for Us, uh, literally ran, you know, he was on the senior people team at Robinhood and Google before that. Uh, Blair Shane ran marketing at Stanford Business School in Sequoia. And so we have these people as resources. And so both the GPs and also to your point, um, others, 
that's the operating cadence we're looking for is deep functional uh, expertise at scale stage companies, not just startups. So they can tell you kind of what's worked and what hasn't. Um, we have also, of course, advisors do that. In the next generation, um, the thing I would just add is we want to have majors and minors. I think I heard someone use that in one of your shows. Um, the majors, everybody loves technology, but the specialization, not just in broadly AI, but specifically around, um, for example, like large, you know, horizontal models. We have folks that have worked on some of that when they did research in universities. You know, I do a lot in, in digital health and health sciences. We have folks that are even more specialized in that than I am. So, um, ultimately though, I think what's really important, it's less about even focus and background and it's more about trust with each other. Um, because of our equal partnership model and our heritage, um, there isn't any, you know, turf wars. Like for us, the question we always ask is, who is the best person to help this company? And if the entrepreneur feels that, hey, Somesh, you're the best person to help, great. If he feels like Ajay's background is actually more relevant, we're actually quite flexible about who's the board member, who's the point, whose services as your interface to the firm. And, and how about in terms of uh, platform team, in terms of what roles you've chosen to have versus not have, et cetera? Yeah, I think for us, the big areas we've invested in are marketing. Uh, the reality is it's important now to tell the story. So to your point, like <laughs> I think for many years, um, our the growth industry was really not one that had to really build a distinguished brand. I think you know it was much more of a referral business when I started. The early stage firms referred the growth firms to the companies. Now we've you know, 90% of what we do is proactive sourcing. And it's been that case for over a decade now. And in which case you do have to tell the story back to your question about differentiation. I have a version of that every week with founders who are thinking about working with us. So part of that is just, it's not about, you know, the portfolio and the dollars you put in and what the returns are. That's good for the LPs. But for the founders, what's more relevant is the value add, the engagement, the partnership, and the specificity with that, um, with helping similar companies when they're at the same stage is why we have invested heavily in marketing. Um, talent and recruiting, if you get really deep into it, um, recruiting actually is, is more multi-pronged than people think. It's not just, hey, can you help me find a VP of product? It's, hey, do we kick off an executive search and what's the right benchmarking and analysis for compensation? How do we think about basically cash versus equity? When's the right time to bring in RSUs? How do we think about the right parameters with which to set off the search? How do we do back channeling? So to get hiring right in this very competitive market, it actually takes a talent team to really sort of work alongside the management team and company. So we've invested a lot in that. Um, we also are going to continue investing in these other functional areas. We typically start with an individual. You know, we have folks that were former CFOs or CHROs, and then we build a team around them to sort of help around that. I think, um, but the most important thing to us is at the scale stage, what we really want to focus on is more executive searches and the desire of the management team and the board of directors to move in certain directions. What we, since we don't do pre-seed, seed, and series A, what we're not doing is doing ever searches for individual developers or, you know, kind of a PMM or something like that. We occasionally will send folks that come through our network, but that's a harder thing for our model to scale. If, you know, we have a thousand person company and we're basically running all the searches, that's not our model. Other firms do that, I think, and that's great. But we, we actually believe when you hit a certain scale, most companies do need to actually figure most of that stuff out, you know, themselves. Yeah. That, um, that, that makes sense. Uh, uh I want to zoom out and get your predictions for the asset class at large. How, how do you think it's going to change? Is it going to shrink? Is it going to evolve? When do you un unpack your thoughts there? I've always felt that venture 
looks a lot, it's always five to 10 years behind private equity. So I think if you look at private equity in 2008, it was very similar to where venture is in 2024. At that point in time, um, a very large private equity firm was $10 billion. And we're talking about 15, 16 years ago. When the financial crisis hit, a lot of private equity firms decided, hey, it's time for us to build a global LP base. So that's when you started seeing KKR and Blackstone and others, I think, really developing their IR uh, functionality, developing new products, and actually going global with brands. And you also saw then, I think, the onset of a few of the companies deciding to go public. Um, You saw that happen in private equity in the last decade. Similarly, I think what we're going to see in the next decade is, and we're already starting to see it, venture firms institutionalizing fundraising. I think this um, is causing firms to start investing in investor relations and building teams. Um, We no longer, if you look at IVP1, it was basically insurance companies, um, early kind of risk-taking pension funds, endowments, and foundations that were all US local that were RLPs. Fast forward to today, you know, 30% of our capital base is now outside the United States. And I expect that to stay the same or grow, actually, even if we stay at the same size. Um, so I think that's already a change we're seeing. If you look at the, a lot of the firms that you have on, you know, a lot of those um, uh, firms and the managing partners spend a lot of their time on developing LP relationships, not just when they raise a fund, but also in interfacing with them, co-investing with them, getting to know them. Um, I do think we're going to see probably a few firms decide to go public. Um, I guess you can never say never, but I'm quite certain I could say IVP will not be one of them. <laughs> so I think that'll be an interesting uh, journey and evolution for our industry. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this, Eric, though, with AI. What I'm excited by is I think AI is going to create finally a bit more efficiency to your earlier question on, on venture capital's core business, which is investing. You know, a lot of the business today is similar to what it was two decades ago, which is, you know, you kind of hear of a company, you know, a bunch of companies are showing up in the whole vetting process The entrepreneur and the venture firm are figuring out, really, are, are, are we both in the right place? I think with AI, as companies become more digitized and automated, it becomes much easier to figure out, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. And I want to go raise $30 million. Who are the individuals at the firms that are relevant? That can solve these problems. You could essentially see a chat GPT like interface for a lot of entrepreneurs just in the next few years to enable them to triage in the way that today we basically do at the board meeting. Oh yeah, you should talk to him or her. Oh yeah, you should. So I actually am excited about that because I think what it'll mean is more time for all of us to spend with our founders in helping them unlock the aspirations and dreams of their companies and less time on the inefficient part of the job, which is both LP fundraising sometimes or figuring out how to do, you know, the right, the right parties at bay for, for fundraising for companies. So you talked about where, where the industry is going, where is IVP going? You know, a uh, couple, couple decades, you yourself, where, where do you see uh, you and IVP going in the, in the future? To be candid, Eric, for me, um, it, a lot of people viewed 2021 as this bonanza year for venture capital with the valuations. Um, that was the year I probably enjoyed the least. One was just a personal reason. I think the pandemic um, just took away the ability to um, be in person with my partners, to be in person with founders, to travel without fear of um, health risks. And I think that had really, um, some people are just, they, they don't mind that. For me, I really enjoy meeting people in person. And I think that was hard for me. I also um, 
Venture is about trust and partnership. And I think uh, what the market had evolved to at every stage of the venture model then was, um, you know, you get a Zoom in the morning, the entrepreneur says to you, hey, um, I need a term sheet before I give you data. Uh, you have 48 hours to finish your work. Uh, we're never going to meet in person. Um, you know, you're going to need to do this at 200x ARR. Uh, and, and I think it became more of a game of sort of how do you find the highest price in the fastest amount of time possible? And I would try to tell entrepreneurs like, this is a, this is a journey and we're going to be working together for five to 10 years in all likelihood. Rushing a process, nobody wants an inefficient process, but rushing it to two days um, creates too much strain on the system. Uh, it is a much healthier dynamic now. Entrepreneurs um, really do want to spend the time with venture capitalists. Venture capitalists, I think, want to devote the time to determine if they can be helpful to, to founders. Um, so this is, I think, the right balance. This is a cyclical business. I've seen it over the last 19 years. I am sure there will be a point where things will, again get frothy and things will move faster. Um, memories are short in venture capital, as you've said before. Um, you know, for me, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, the joy of working with these founders, I'm still like a kid in a candy store when I get a chance to make a new investment. Um, I've actually made two uh, to end the year that we'll be announcing soon. Uh, and working with these incredible founders, whether it's, you know, Jason at Discord, David Ebersman at Lyra, um, you know, Arvin at Perplexity, it just it makes you realize you get a, a canvas about how the world and the industry is evolving. And you have a, I always said like the most, the most fun thing about our job is you're able to have a voice in companies that can have really large impact, you know, in our industry and in our society more broadly. Um, that's also responsibility. And as I've evolved, I think, you know, you go from being uh, the eternal advocate and everything to in the right settings, being able to um, actually, you know, debate with founders and, and just be a mirror and say, is this what you believe is the right path forward for the company? And most of the founders I work with, if you do it in the right way, they actually really appreciate it. Um, and if you do it in the wrong way, uh, not a good idea. <laughs> and so um, for the firm, I think we're, we really feel like, you know, one of my partners said the other day, we should think about um, like, if we were to start IVP over again, what would we retain? And what would we change? And the thing that we've come to is we would always retain the partnership model, the apprenticeship model. We really, um, I sit in you know the office that our founder, Reed Dennis, started the firm in. And I take that responsibility of all of us coming together and continuing this, um, this firm on very seriously. Um, I think it was Eric Fisher who said, like, we just don't want to mess it up. You know? And I think I really resonate with that. Like, we really owe it uh, to our predecessors to uh, make them proud. I, I really believe in that. The, the other thing I'd say is the firm is really, really focused on um, really having impact at those really crucial moments in a company's life cycle and, and doing so in a collaborative way with other independent board members, other venture investors, um, not just founders, but the management team. This is, it takes an army, as they say. And so that's what's really exciting. We're in year two, Eric, of AI, as you and I have talked about. And what I think is really exciting for me is... Um, I think this is truly a revolution that is going to have so many things that we can't imagine. Even right now, as you and I are talking, like so many ideas are probably popping in your mind, certainly in mine, about just different areas of investment and different areas of collaboration. And um, I just feel really fortunate that IVP and, and me as a derivative are going to be able to participate in that. I don't take that lightly. Um, you know, being on having a franchise that's endured four decades and 17 funds, um, venture firms, 
the reality is sometimes strategy is the reason they don't endure, but actually usually it's because people stop getting along and people just don't want to work with each other um, anymore. We invest a lot of time in just spending, you know, cycles with each other, like vetting things out. We never, we, our founder had a phrase, um, he had many, I'll share a couple. Uh, you want to disagree without being disagreeable. He also had a good one, which is, uh, I've never met a rich pessimist, <laughs> which, uh, I always remind people it's easy to be critical, but ultimately we're all deep optimists about venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship. So, um, I am excited. Uh, I feel like, you know, this is going to be a really fun, uh, next five to 10 years of venture capital. Yeah. Another uh, derivative of that phrase is uh, pessimists sound smart, optimists make money. Yes. <laughs> That's a great note to, to wrap on. Uh, so much, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing uh, your wisdom and, and uh, reeling behind the curtains of, uh, of how, how you guys operate at IBP. Well, thank you, Eric, for having me. And uh, I look forward to hearing more of your amazing guests and hopefully learning from them as well. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 